The Interim Leader podcast is brought to you by Odgers Interim, the UK's number one interim management provider. Hi, I'm Bambos Heraklius, Head of the Media and Entertainment Practice at Odgers Interim, and welcome to Career Stories the podcast series that delves into the careers and experiences of leading executives that work across our sectors. Today's guest is Sue Brooks, the Managing Director for Product Development and Strategy at Reuters News Agency. Sue started her career as a reporter for both radio and newspapers before moving into production and editorial roles for the BBC, Channel 4 and ITN. A reminder that we're recording this remotely in lockdown and apologies in advance for any background noise that you might hear. Sue, welcome. How are you? I'm well, Bambos. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. The sun is shining. We're nearly out of lockdown. So, um, you know, optimistic, I think, is the best way to put it. Well, don't, <laughs> don't count your chickens. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking before we hopped onto the call about the last time you and I met in person. And it was around February last year. And the reason that I remember it is that we were having a nice lunch. And you mentioned that you'd just come from a meeting um, where you'd heard that the uh, Tokyo Olympics may be uh, cancelled. And I was shocked because back in February last year, we didn't quite know what was what was about to happen to us. Um, and, I, and I couldn't believe it. And I think it, it then soon escalated um, from, from there on in. But I'm, I'm pretty sure the conversation that you and I had was the first time that I started to to, to think, okay, this is going to be a lot more serious <laughs> than, than I thought. Um, but that's probably a good, a good snapshot of, of what it's like for you. You get to get to hear and see things a lot quicker, a lot sooner than, than the rest of us do. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, yes and no. We certainly have the expertise um, to analyse all the stuff that's happening um, and, and give opinion. Although in that case, it's it, we've gone full circle. I think the Olympics are, are back on again now, although mm. perhaps not with... Uh, much um, excitement in terms of audience but so, so, so we get to hear things obviously and um, analyze them and, and make decisions about them and verify them but in these days of social media and Twitter and um, you know Facebook and everything I'm not sure actually that you know it's it's kind of much more democratizing as they say it don't know about who, who gets to know what straight away I think the advantage and the joy about working for an organization like Reuters is that we get the information and we can um, verify it and when, once you've read, read it from you know as you know that you can trust it but uh, hmm. everybody has information now in fact too much information quite often <laughs> to be honest. Yeah and that's, that's definitely something that I want to want to uh, pick up on a, a bit later but uh, how have the last 12 months been um, for, for Reuters given what's happened? Well, it's been the same as it has been for, for the whole world, I think. I mean, it's challenging in every sense. Both, you know, my stepfather and mum died within week, weeks of each other at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, like everybody else in, in the world, really, kind of dealing with the personal um, awfulness of it all while trying to keep the professional show on the road. Um, from a com- company like uh, Reuters, it was, you know, ensuring the journalists in the field were safe. Uh, that was the biggest challenge that Reuters faced um, because demand for, for our content, demand for, for news globally has never, ever been stronger. Um, and of course, you know, our customers rely on us to be places they couldn't get to. 
uh, because no one was traveling. Uh, so the editorial teams are, are, are gathering news under the most extreme of circumstances. And, and that's not unusual for us at all. But what was unusual is, is, is the length of the story. Usually, if, if a journalist goes into a difficult or dangerous uh, situation, we can revolve them out every three weeks or whatever. That's what the editorial leaders do as a matter of course. But in, a, in this pandemic, that was just not possible because of, you know, isolation and everything else. So the, the fantastic, you know, 2,500 journalists around the world have had the most um, difficult um, of times. Um, it's been really, really intensive. I watched actually, it was last week, we had our internal um, Journalist of the Year Awards, we call them the Joy Awards. And I, I tell you, Van Basten, you take my hat off to every single one of them. They've done some astonishing work this year. Mm. We'll look back on, on, begin to look back on the career in a second, but just um, just tell us a bit about your, your current role at Reuters and what it entails. Uh, well, I'm um, Global Head of Product is, is, is the official title. <laughs> that, that means that um, I ensure that all that fantastic work that the journalists are doing, um, you know, text, pictures, video, and increasingly audio <laughs> uh, podcasts, indeed, um, they're producing every day. I mean, I'm sure that it, um, to, to, the, the phrase of, of, of the moment is delight, delights our customers. So I, I work with editorial, technology, sales teams, and all the time, obviously keeping um, an eye on the future as well as the present and making sure that the customer's need is at the centre of any, every decision we make. We, we don't quite have a chair labelled customer like I know some organisations do, but they're certainly, certainly there in spirit at every decision we make. And, and that's basically my job, ensuring that everybody, uh, I represent them. Yeah. Take me, uh, take me back to the start then. Um, because <laughs> because you started as a as a reporter in in local news, is that correct? Yes, yes, I did. I was uh, I was seventeen. My God, they <laughs> <laughs> say the past is another country. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was that was with um, was was it Derby? Have I got that right? Yeah, uh, yeah, the Dar- Derby Evening Telegraph. See, now I can't tell any of my stories because we've outed them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true, that's true. Um, but we, um, w- w- was it something that you'd always wanted wanted to do? I mean, it, you know, gr- growing up, getting into news, getting, being a journalist? I'd always wanted to be a journalist, yes. But, um, you know, I, I went to a quite a strict convent school and it was, uh, you know, considered three steps worse than prostitution at that stage. <laughs> Um, and uh, it was, yeah, and, and I was, you know, came from a working class background and um, was going to be the first first person to, to go to university um, and uh, left school, ran away from school at 17 to to go and become a journalist, to join the circus, as it was. It, it, obviously, there was a lot in between and that's it, nowhere near as romantic as that sounds, of course, but uh, it was it was a big deal at the time, yeah. So what was it like as a 17-year-old uh, taking your first steps into, in, into news and, and into journalism? God, well, it was complete. I mean, we had no typewriters. There's no internet. Uh, when the printing presses rolled, the whole building shook and the, the smell and the dirt from the hot metal, it was pervasive through everything. And it, the, the building literally shook. And it was almost visceral, kind of... I'm looking back and it, it's exciting, you know, almost sexy, the kind of physicality of it. You knew it was happening because everything, you know, 
as I say, you heard this hum and then the, the building would shake. So, so it's the late 70s and journalism was um, considered a, a craft and, and not a pro- profession or a, it was actually a trade and not a profession. So I was indentured, um, that was the word, and signed in, in blood almost, beautiful, beautiful um, scroll of paper that um, meant I was indentured to the Derby Me Telegraph, um, paid very little in return for, for three years um, work and being trained in all aspects of, uh, of being a reporter. Hmm. And were you, in terms of a training, I mean, were you, were you given a pencil and, and, and a notepad and, and told to go out there? Or was there something a bit more, a bit more formal and structured where you're assigned to a more senior reporter? Uh, no, you, you, you started um, d- doing the, what they called the rewrites, um, which was uh, local news that was sent in from um, local clubs, like the local um, women's institutes, mm-hmm. um, did the obituaries which was writing um, reports about people who died. And um, then you progressed to the courts and, and on from there. And, and then got sent away to college. I was sent to um, Sheffield College for um, two block release, they call them, stints of, um, I think it was two months um, a year to learn shorthand and law and um, the basics in public administration and all the stuff that you needed. So it was pretty thorough, kind of, you know, on and off the job. Um, a great training, looking yeah. back. And and you then moved on to radio? Yeah. So moved on from there to um, local radio station in, um, in Nottingham. You know, never really had a career plan as such. I moved to, to Nottingham um, because my spelling was terrible. And um, people were saying at that stage, look, you know, newspapers are dying. <laughs> this was in the 70s. Radio is the future. They're taking a long time to die. I hope they never do. And um, and to be honest, I, it was I had a boyfriend in Nottingham and <laughs> couldn't afford the train fares to go and see him anymore. So um, moved to, to a radio station called Radio Trent, which was, was great. Lots of fun. Yeah. So at, at that time, did you think this was going to be your, your career? I mean, I'd appreciate, you know, you said you didn't have a plan as such, but, you know, having, having been at the newspaper, then at the radio, were you then thinking about moving into, into television and broadcasting at, at that point? No. <laughs> I, I really, when I say I've never had a plan, I mean I've, I've never had a plan. And I, Even I now? certainly see... No, no. <laughs> I, I see career more in terms of a, a climbing frame to be navigated rather than a pyramid to be climbed. You know, I've taken sideways steps, even steps that were considered backwards at the time, but they've always suited my um, circumstances, be it having young children or in the case of moving from Derby to to Nottingham or from uh, to to London from the Midlands in the mid eighties was because, you know, I'd fallen in love or something. It wasn't ever, it, it was completely um, reactive, if you like, not proactive. It's not what they say you should do, is it? But, you know, that's how it's <laughs> well, whatever, whatever works, I guess. But do you feel as though you could have taken some other, some other routes and, and ended up elsewhere? Do you ever look back and think, well, if I'd done this, then I could have been here? And, or, you know, you're just fairly relaxed about it all. Yeah, I am fairly relaxed about it. And, and also because, you know, of my background, which, which was, you know, pretty working class um, Midland girl, although there is a great um, legacy of really good journalists from the East Midlands. But 
it was actually, to be honest, to be earning a living was fantastic. To be earning a living in a job that you enjoyed was, was just unheard of. And I was, you know, I was having lots of fun and I was really enjoying what I was doing. I thought what I was doing was really important, um, still do, which is why I wanted to be a journalist in the first place. So uh, that was that was always enough. You know, I didn't have the ambition. Well, clearly, I'm very ambitious, but I didn't have an eye on the next job as a as a kind of a linear thing. As I say, I don't see careers as as. Um, ladders to be scaled or, or climbed up it's, it's much more um, you've got a life to live at the same time haven't you and I think living the life is important what looking back on it what was the best bit of reporting or, or, or best news story that you covered during your time in in radio oh blimey and th- then it was the miners strike uh, if, if you like I, if you can view it in these terms um, made my career if, if you like it was Radio Trent and it was the uh, minor strike and it was very much centered around um nottingham and nottinghamshire pits and as uh, as somebody you know on on the midst of it you know you you suddenly became known uh, nationally so I used to um submit pieces to what was then called what well, still is called irn um and the minor strike was my first um real exposure to a, to a, to a global story and and that was you know it was a very important story. It was important to Nottinghamshire from a, a local perspective um, and point of view as a young reporter, but also obviously in the middle of the, the Thatcher government as it was then, was um, you know important nationally and, and indeed internationally to some extent. Um, so so that, that was my first uh, kind of feel, if you like, of, of a big, big story that resonated beyond, beyond the immediate patch. In, in, interesting, the um, <laughs> some of my uh, daughter's uh, school friends were, were doing um, we, they were doing their history GCSE about years ago now, and they were they were studying the mine, miners' strike as part of their history GCSE, and I was saying, how can that happen? <laughs> I lived that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it also shows the, the importance, I guess, of of local news and local news reporting. Um, both from a print perspective and radio. And, and obviously over the last few years, um, that's been challenging, right? And still changing. Do you see a future for, for local news from a, a print and radio perspective? Uh, well, yes, I, I do, but, but uh, it'll change. And I think it will go back. There's a lot of research being done now that says that, uh, that there is a connection between um, local the local newspapers certainly in America and uh, trust in democracy as well. So I think it's really really important. Um, it'll it'll be different. I have no doubt about that. But you know, a lot of the newspapers now have got some fantastic websites and going digital, and a lot of the um, you know mobile social uh, and going into mobile and social media as well. I think that's you know, local knowledge coming from trusted sources locally is really important. The BBC are, are playing a great part there as well. And am I right in thinking that after radio, that's when you began to move into production and into a different, different type of uh, role? Uh, yes, I went to um, work at the BBC. Breakfast Telly was just starting um, and went to um, work there as an, what was it? I think it was called an assistant producer then. Uh, after a stint at um, IRN, which was fantastic, 
um, so IRN LBC, which was uh, run out of a basement in Gough Square, just off Fleet Street, which was my first job in London. She, somebody should write a PhD about that newsroom because it was a, a breeding ground for so much talent. There was, you know, John Snow was there, Martha Carney, wow. Mark Easton, Janice Sutherland, Mark Mardell. They were all, um, yeah, I mean, it really was fantastic. The diaspora from um, IRNLBC in that era is just, you know, running global media all over the world. Uh, it, was fant- it was a really good time. You could drink for 24 hours, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> He went from Smithfield and <laughs> to Fleet Street. <laughs> the good old days, eh? The good old days. What was Breakfast TV like? Um, that was, it was very, very different. It was um, Sofa and um, Jeremy Paxman was on the sofa, believe it or not, yeah. in, in, in those days. And um, it was the um, ITV's TVAM had just launched and the BBC were kind of um, not playing catch-up exactly, I don't think, but uh, doing their own version. But it did actually change the face of, of, of telly because breakfast, breakfast TV was just, you know, not heard of mm-hmm. at all, you know, as a concept, never mind as a, as a kind of magazine programme. So we, we had, great, again, you know, really long. We used to do 14-hour shifts um, overnight in a studio called Lime Grove Studio in... Uh, in London, I don't think it's there anymore. It's probably a block of flats or something. Um, but again, it, it was everything we was we were just learning. We were all learning together because it was also new, and um, you know, experimenting the whole time what worked and what didn't. And then people say now, you know, fail fast, fail cheap. But we were failing all the time in those early days of uh, of, of television news, as it were. That makes me sound ancient, doesn't doesn't it? <laughs> but that's what we did, you know. Very agile. We'd be very trendy now. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's, it's interesting because you know, in in my job, I I do a lot of interviewing, as you know, interview candidates for and um, and prospective interim managers for all sorts of roles. We always focus on on the bits that have gone right. Yeah, we always focus on the achievements um, and what they can take to the next role. It's very rare that we pick up on on failures and challenges. And that's, that's something that happens to all of us. So it's quite refreshing to hear it in that context. But, you know, was, was there ever a time where you thought, what have I done here? This is, this is too much. The risk of failure is huge. How am I going to overcome this? You know, you've had some pretty, pretty important jobs over, over the years. I mean, after, after BBC, I think you then went on to Channel 4 and, and ITM. But were, were you ever overawed by any particular situation or challenge? Oh, I, I've been overawed my entire life and, and, and out of my comfort zone my entire life. And, and, and you just get used to it. And, um, you know, the failing thing is I just wake up expecting to cock it up. <laughs> I don't. That's, that's a, a job well done. I mean, you know, obviously you get more experience and, and, and you, you do learn as you, you go along. And I, I remember thinking I've had bosses that I think thought at the time oh my god you're so clever you're absolutely brilliant and of course they were but actually now I know they were just experienced and 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 I do believe and I've actually always even before it was trendy believe that if you're not failing you're not actually trying hard enough you've got to you've got to push yourself and push the barriers 
out to, 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 to achieve anything, really, haven't you? Yeah, I, mean, no, I completely agree. And it's something that I always try and tell, tell my kids as well. Um, even, even at that that early age, don't be don't be afraid of, um, of failing. It's just it's just strange, isn't it? That as we get into our twenties and our thirties, um, we completely forget that. And and I think especially now, actually, the risk of failure seems to be so high. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are given that opportunity to, as you say, cock it up. Um, and when they do, they think that you know it's uh, you can't rectify that mistake. But actually, it's part of it's part of building your career and building your character, isn't it? It is, and 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 thank God, you know, I'm, I'm not a brain surgeon yeah. Or, or, yeah, or or an airline pilot, but <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think you know a lot of it does come from from background because if you imagine, you know, just being a journalist on the local newspaper to 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 somebody from where I was coming from was such an amazing achievement that that I I and and that it was the end in itself, you know, so it never occurred to me. That there could be anything better so so cocking it up was almost inevitable you know <laughs> you make mistakes every day of the the, the the year and and anybody that says they don't i think is lying but it, it it's about expectation isn't it i was never taught to um expect the earth if if, if you like and I, I see my children and, and friends of my children now with you know very brilliant young women and strings of a stars at GCSEs and whatever but they mm. you know they don't actually fail until they they don't know what failure is like and they don't know that they can pick themselves up dust themselves down and and get on with it um they they get i mean not just my kids obviously but you know who are absolutely brilliant in every way of course but you know that um that that's what's expected that that you know everything will be in the uh, a life of, of of success and A stars or whatever. I think you should be taught to. I don't know. It's adversity, isn't it? They say quite often that so successful or grit. It's it's about trying to find that um, grit and determination to to keep to keep going. Because you see, if I see a wall in front of me or a barrier, my my first you know I will sling a ladder over it or dig under it or or blow it up. It doesn't occur to me at all that it's there just to you know to fail. Did you did you have mentors, role, role models during that time that helped you with that journey? Um, yeah, I mean th- there are role models wherever you are, aren't there? For for but but for different different periods of of your career. So you know, I can remember at uh, Channel Four News there was a fantastic foreign editor called uh, Sue English who had um, juggled having two children and um, a great job as a, a, at the coalface of, of foreign news. So, you know, looked to her for a lot of, of inspiration for how she made that work. Um, at, at AP, there was a fantastic um, bloke called uh, Nigel Baker, who had um, very experienced, and he had gone from being a journalist a hands-on journalist to being a um, managing director to, to getting to know the business side of the industry and you know um, made that switch between the newsroom and the boardroom and he'd done that very successfully and he really helped me do it as well um, so, so that was you know you, you find different different mentors for different times mm-hmm. you know the career then took you to Channel 4 
as uh, as home news editor, and then on to uh, ITN, uh, where you were a news editor for Westminster. Um, at a really interesting time. Well, I mean, politics is always interesting, I guess. But you know, in that that mid to, mid to late nineties, um, obviously the political landscape had uh, was was shifting considerably. What was it like? Oh, it was great fun. <laughs> I mean, it, it was clearly very serious. There was um, work with a, a political editor called Michael Bronson, who was a, an absolute force of nature, along again with some, so, so many talented people, you know, Jackie Ashley and, and Hugh Pym, who were great, great, still are actually great journalists. Um, and every day was a, a, an absolute roller coaster. You know, we, we shared an office in the Commons with the uh, political teams from the Sun and the Evening Standard. And uh, Trevor Kavanagh, I think, was the political editor for The Sun at the time. And he used to, <laughs> this has been a real theme in my, uh, my career, he used to shout at me for swearing. <laughs> and yet didn't mind that I used to stick my head out the window for a cigarette when the going got, <laughs> got tough. No, nobody minded <laughs> that, but the swearing wasn't allowed, which uh, in fact uh, an HR person said to me, not just after I joined Reuters, um, what did they say? You've got to bring your whole self to work, be authentic, but you can't swear. I said, well, you can have one or the other. You can have me authentic or you can have me not swearing, but the two, <laughs> the two won't go together. <laughs> oh, dear. You try, though. Um, so, yeah, no, it was great. When we had those Black Wednesday um, when Britain left the Euro matches, but got a mortgage as well. And I was thinking, oh, my God completely bankrupt well and again there's this thing of you know all the time which loads of people have in in, in their jobs I know juggling the professional while the personal is impacting you in the moment you know seeing the the interest rates going up and up and up and knowing that you are actually you know technically bankrupt on one at professional personally while professionally you know having to ensure that the television crews were in the right place and you having to, to cover the story as you were, like doing the, you know, the pandemic when you're, you know, grieving like the rest of the world for your, for your mum and uh, stepfather. It's, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. When did you, when did you then move to the News at 10? Was it, was it around that time? Yeah, I moved to the Lunchtime News, which is where they put all the, um, the rookie news editor, uh, programme editors at ITN. It may well be the case of the BBC as well. I don't know. It's how you, cut your teeth on program editing but it is the worst program because nothing's actually prepared um you know the date the, the program goes on air about i don't know 12 30 something like that so the day's barely started and you're it's the hardest program to do out of all of the all of the news bulletins that go out during the day the hardest is, is always the lunchtime news because the agenda's not set the meetings haven't happened the the prime minister's question time or whatever it is will still be going on it's um technically and professionally the most hard the, the hardest one to do and yet that's where they put all the all the rookies and um does any one story any one particular day stick out for you when you look back at that at that time with itn and uh, and use that 10 in particular oh i mean there, there would have to be the death of um the death of princess diana um at, at, during those days, yes, it was it, it was so shocking. And um, again, my, my husband um, was foreign editor 
at the time. And um, I was working on ITN, which was much more, um, he, he was a foreign editor in Channel 4 News. And rarely did our um, worlds collide because actually foreign news was very, um, was, was student. very few stories impact both the domestic and the foreign agenda, but this one was absolutely global. And I remember we both got phone calls about three or four in the morning to say that uh, she'd, she died and to get into the office. And um, we had no childcare. And we were literally arguing on the doorstep as to which one of us was needed more in the office while we were trying to scramble together some people to um, look after the kids. It's funny, isn't it? It's, um, it, that was a really amazing couple of weeks wasn't it because I, I mean I, I I remember you know coming home from a night night out on a Saturday and early hours of the morning and switching on the tv and kind of seeing it unfold via um yeah it would have been it would have been ITV so it would have been ITN at that at, at that time and it was just an amazing thing to watch and then and then the public grieving for you know the weeks to follow it just yeah, I, I mean, I'd never seen anything anything like it, and I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. Right? No, no, the flowers you could. Uh, I took um, I took my daughter to go and see the flowers. You could smell them, um, you know, streets away from Kensington Palace before you got there. It was absolutely astonishing. Yeah, in between ITN and Reuters, you spent um, about 13, 14 years with uh, AP Associated Press. In quite a in in some different roles, um, and I don't know. I, you know tell, tell me if I've got this right. An interesting period of time because you then began to see the digital transformation of news um, during that period. A lot must have changed in those in those 10, 13, 14 years that you were there. Yeah. No. I, well, Facebook happened. Twitter happened. I mean, yeah. It was it was astonishing, really. Uh, I moved to AP following a break. I, Two small children and was by then editing news at 10 which was a brilliant job but meant I said goodbye to the kids on a Sunday night and didn't see them again until Thursday morning so I thought a quasi-management job at the AP would be kind of more manageable but uh, joined at the beginning of September the uh, of September 2001 and uh, 11 days later the world was turned upside down from as I mentioned earlier, I then started the, the, the transition, if you like, from the newsroom to, to the business side um, and, and understanding. Because at that, those days, um, product as a function wasn't really very known at, at newsrooms, in, in newsrooms so, uh, or in news organisations. So we were kind of starting again from, from ground zero and, and uh, making it up as we went along, really. And... Uh, and, and failing lots, but but succeeding lots too. It was again a, a great time because you you get to when when there are no expectations, um, you 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 have the ability, don't you, to 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 experiment more. And given the role that you're in now, and given the change that you've seen, where do you think news and uh, and the industry will be five ten years from now? Because it, it seems like we're fast approaching another crossroads. Um, we have a couple of new news channels being launched here in the UK over over the coming months. Um, we've had the fallout from the Trump administration in the States, fake news, whether it be BBC, ITN, Channel 4 as sources of trusted news. Things seem to be a lot more polarised now than ever before. So as I said, it seems to be coming to, to, to another crossroads. Where do you see that taking the industry in the coming years? 
uh, look, pe- people call me Pollyanna. Um, and, but, but I, I do, you know, I really think that, that, that this could only be a good thing for the news industry. I, you know, I, we really are in the golden age of journalism. Um, and, and the pandemic's shown us that. It's shown us that news is more important than ever. Um, trusted brands like, you know, you mentioned Reuters, obviously, and uh, BBC, etc., are seeing a, a renaissance. People are consuming more news than ever before. I think new channels can only be good for the for the industry, and and also having a new perspective can only be good for the industry, can't it? I know um, I've been spending lucky enough to to come back to my roots during the uh, pandemic, and I've been working from Derbyshire, and um, seeing that people's view of the world through a completely different lens to the usual. Um, you know, London bubble or metropolitan global bubble, actually, that I, I live and work in because I, you know, obviously do a lot of traveling. Um, it is a completely different world, you know, a completely different perspective. And bodes well for, as you said before, local local news uh, reporting, whether it be newspapers or, or radio. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think radio is seeing a big uh, renaissance as well. And I, I hope local news um, does as well. I don't yet know what form it will take. Uh, I suspect lots of it will be, um, as I said earlier, digital and and, and social. But I I hope that the idea of having um, cub reporters, if you like, again, um, I think trainees, local newspapers still do have trainees. Um, I don't know whether it's to the extent that uh, they did when when I was uh, a lass, as they say, but... uh, can only be a good thing because you're the way that you know your community and uh, what it means to be part of that community and most importantly what's important to to that community and you know it's why it's so interesting that social is all about communities isn't it and building communities and so I can't quite understand why uh, local media hasn't been more successful the last um, 10-20 years given they had everything Every, everything you needed really they had you know absolute trust they were trusted very much in their communities they had the voice of the community and they um, were, were absolutely embedded in it and part of it so so theoretically you know they should be flying high mm. I, I know from conversations that you and I have had in the past that um, you're very keen on social mobility it's it's a passion of yours how do you how do you look to impact on that now as a leader of, of an of a organization? What what kind of things do you look to put in place um, in order to uh, in order to make that happen? Well, like like any Reuters is is making diversity a real focus, and um, all leaders are being judged and and rewarded on um, on making progress in terms of um, you know the diversification of our, our workforce. I um, as you say. Personally, I'm very uh, obsessed, if you like, and, and, and no surprise for anybody listening to this on, on, on social mobility. Uh, I don't think that a, a 17-year-old from Derbyshire leaving school with a handful of GCSEs today could have the career I've had, and, and, and that's just plain wrong. You know, It's wrong because business is uh, losing out on all that talent, and it's wrong because working-class kids aren't getting the opportunities uh, they deserve. 
So um, government's incentivizing apprenticeships. We've got two on our team at the moment. Yay. And they're both amazing. Um, But you do need a corporate commitment as well. And, um, you know, luckily, as I say, Reuters is making this a real focus. Um, But it's, you know, it's it's difficult, isn't it? But how do working class kids get work experience? And you you get CVs with, um, you know, some children who who, or young people who've, who've been doing work experience in newsrooms or wherever since they were, you know, 14. But they, you know, lots of kids don't have the networks they need. Um, and somebody just down the road from me here now, they've got one computer in the household and have had to choose between their, you know, the last year between their son who was going, I think, into to year eight and uh, their daughter who was just doing her GCSEs. No, it's uh, uh, the, the digital divide is, is um, really important, I think. And if you haven't got the wherewithal to, to have the computers or whatever it is digitally you need or the networks that you need, um, you can have a, you know, on the face of it, diverse slate of candidates for a job. But if they've all been to Ivy League universities, where, you know, where's the diversity of thought? I think that's really important. I, I remember really vividly as a, a young journalist being uh, turned down for a job I really wanted at the BBC. And uh, they turned me down, asked them why. And they said, because I didn't know what a varsity match was or what it meant to have a blue. Now, you know, would that have, made me any worse or better for the job and I, I know in fairness to the BBC things have changed enormously there now and they're making real real efforts um, like the rest of us but um, I saw some stats recently that said the media is uh, more socially exclusive than medicine and, and you know that's got to change really has got to change. So with all with, with all that in mind final question um, you know given the career that you've had given where you started given given now um, you're a leader within a within a massive organisation. What what advice would you give a 17, 18 year old, or someone just leaving university who wants to break into journalism and, and the news industry? You make your own luck. It, it, it is a cliche. It, I mean, it is a cliche, and I, I I don't see challenges. I see opportunities. So so back to the you know if you see a wall, blow it up or throw a ladder over it. Uh, you know I took a big salary drop to work at the AP. Um, so I could have more family-friendly hours. But then it was there that I learned more about the business side of the organisation. And it was from there that I moved into product. And then hence, I've got the job that I've got today. So grasp every opportunity, even when it doesn't feel like an opportunity at the time. Um, you know, grasp it and make it work for you. And if it doesn't work for you, fight to change it. And, um, and for you, are there still a few more walls that you'd like to blow up? Oh, Yes. <laughs> well I look, I look i look forward to seeing and hearing all about them <laughs> um thank you so much for taking the time to to speak to us really appreciate it sue and hopefully it won't be too long before uh, we get to see you in person i hope so too gosh thanks very much <laughs> thanks bye <laughs> see ya bye and thanks to you for listening please don't forget to like subscribe and follow to keep up to date with future episodes of career stories 